for this episode, we are doing a replay of the life of Mary Slessor. We did it a lot earlier when the show was a much smaller, so there are many people who have joined since then that may have not had a chance to listen to it yet. So this is your chance. Uh, we are in the middle of moving, as you know, and so I had an episode planned that didn't quite get out the gate in time, so we will actually push it back for next week, and that is the life of Jane Hining. But in the meantime, enjoy Mary Slessor. Her life is absolutely incredible, and I know that you will enjoy it. I'll see you in the next episode. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about Scottish missionary Mary Slessor. Mary Slessor was born in 1848 in Aberdeen, Scotland. She was the second of seven children, and the Slessors were a frail family, and their hard living conditions resulted in the loss of all but Mary and her younger sister Janie by the time that Mary was an adult. Mary's father was a shoemaker by trade, but he was also an alcoholic, and so as he began to drink more and more and his condition began to deteriorate, he was unable to keep making shoes, and so he had to go into taking another job in the mill, so they had to move the family from Aberdeen to a city called Dundee. And Dundee was a city that was a major manufacturing hub on the coast of Scotland, and it's known particularly for its jute, and and jutes used to make burlap and different things, and even today it's second only to cotton in worldwide usage, so there was a lot of demand for it. And so Mary's father ended up taking a job working in one of these mills that manufactured jute and different fabrics. And Mary's mother was a skilled weaver, and she also went to work in the mills, and these were long, hard hours. I mean, you're working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you're working in a very industrialized, very demanding schedule. There's not a lot of, um, not a lot of humanity kind of as you're working in the mills because you're, this is the height of the industrial revolution and everything is kind of automated. And so a lot of these mills ran as though you were machines. It was very difficult work and it was very tiring. Mary's father was a bit of a wild card in the family. Sometimes he would come home and you didn't really know exactly what condition he'd come home in. And sometimes when he came home, he would throw Mary out on the streets for days at a time. I need to wonder, like, how she felt as she's just sitting on these streets, and it's cold sometimes, and it's lonely. You have to think that maybe she didn't she didn't understand really what was happening to her. I mean, she kind of knew, but in the overarching scheme of her life, like, this probably seemed kind of pointless and miserable. And I think this was a sad time in her life that God was able to use later in her life. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Mary's mother was a very devout Christian, and she was described by those who knew her as a sweet-faced woman, patient and gentle, and she took her children to church every Sunday, and she herself was riveted by tales of missionaries to faraway places, particularly the Calabar region in West Africa, and she passed this passion on to her two oldest children, Mary and Robert. In her childhood, Mary described herself as a bit of a wild lassie. Between church services, she and some of the other children would run around and get into all kinds of mischief. And one day, an old woman who would look out her window sometimes, she'd see these children wandering around, and she'd get kind of worried about them. So she took some of the girls aside one Sunday into her home, and the fireplace is blazing, and she she points to the fire, and she says, Do you see that fire? If you were to put your hand into it, it'd be very painful. It would burn you. But if you don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your soul will burn in the blazing fire forever and ever. And after this, Mary was tormented with images of hell, and she couldn't sleep, she couldn't shake the feeling. And so she decided that it would be best just to make peace with God, so she repented and believed. 
It was hellfire that drove her into the kingdom, she would sometimes say. But once she was there, she found it to be a kingdom of love and tenderness and mercy. And she never throughout her career did seek to bring anybody into it as she had come by, by the process of shock and fear. By 14, Mary's father and older brother Robert had both passed away. And so Mary became the primary breadwinner of the family, and she went to work in the mills from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Mary had a deep desire to learn, and so she read books on her way to and from work and any spare minute that she got. And she taught herself everything, including how to read. And she would often badger her mother with all sorts of questions about God and Christian living in general. And outside of work, Mary's only thing that she liked to do was go to church. And so she would uh, learn a lot in these Bible classes, and she'd come back to her mom and ask her all these questions. And Mary's mother just seems like a really awesome lady. I mean, after all this she went through, she lost all but two of her children. And her, her husband was an abusive alcoholic, and she had to work long, hard hours. And she kept the family running smoothly. And she still made time to make sure that her children's spiritual health was taken care of. She was really cool. And Mary wrote down, actually, some of her mom's favorite things to tell her. And this is one of my favorites. She says, Thank God for what you receive. Thank God for what you do not receive. Thank God for the sins you are delivered from, and thank God for the sins that you know nothing at all about and are never tempted to commit. Now, every month, Mary's mother would get the Missionary Monthly, and this was a magazine that was published by the United Presbyterian Church, and it told about the missionary activities and needs and things like that. The most inspiring to Mary and to her mother and actually to the world was David Livingston at this point. And if you're curious to learn more about David Livingston, Revive Thoughts did a, an episode on him, and it's actually one of the only sermons that we have, not of his actual voice, because we don't have one of those, but it was the only sermon that he had written down and uh, has been recorded now into audio. It's a really good sermon. Uh, it's a really good episode, so I really encourage you to check it out, and I will link it in the episode description for this episode if you want to go, go see it. When she was 27, she heard that David Livingston had passed away, and so she decided that she would follow in his footsteps. And so she signed up to work with the United Presbyterian Church's Foreign Mission Board, and she was trained in Edinburgh for about six months or so. And on August 5th, 1876, she headed out on the USS Ethiopia that was headed for West Africa. When she first came to West Africa, she was stationed in the Calabar region in southern Nigeria. And it's a poor city, and at this point it was known for its slave trade. And Britain had outlawed the slave trade officially in 1807. And they actually had outlawed it. They worked really hard to make sure that slaves weren't exported to other countries, but a lot of countries and different people that were shady worked harder to make sure they could get around the British blockades. And some of these countries, including the U.S., continued to skirt their blockades and, and continue the trade um, up until, I think, the U.S. quit in about 1860-something. And the, the official practice of slavery and the slave trade wasn't abolished in this, this region and I think in Nigeria as a whole, West Africa as a whole until like the 1930s or 40s. So it was a very long time. Another thing that this region was known for was its practice of witchcraft. And because you had witchcraft, you also had human sacrifice. And oftentimes, wives and different servants and things, they were killed with their husbands. And chiefs, I'm not sure if it was every time a husband died. I would imagine not. I think it was predominantly the chiefs. And so these wives were buried alive when their husbands died. And the servants were kind of sent, pretty servants in the afterlife for them. And another thing this region was known for was the infanticide of twins. Now, because of witchcraft, people thought that twins were a sign that the mother had done something with an evil spirit or was evil in general, and that one of the twins was fathered by this evil spirit. And they didn't know which one it was. So some region, some, some cities and, and areas had different ways of dealing with that. Some of them would kill the second twin to come out because they thought it was the one that was uh, fathered by an evil spirit. 
Oftentimes, they're left in the bush to be eaten by wild animals or to be uh, exposed to the elements, or they were left to die in clay pots. This area is actually, interestingly enough, the twin capital of the world. One city in this region still has one set of twins born to every family. It's not just that twins are killed here, because you could be like, well, that's bad, but it only happens sometimes. But it happened all the time, because twins were born all the time here. This area was also known as White Man's Grave, and that was for a myriad of reasons, uh, one of which being that the tribesmen were often very violent, and so they were either cannibals or they just killed people on the spot. You had a set of diseases that Westerners weren't used to, malaria through mosquito exposure, crocodiles and hippos lurking beneath the water. So there was a ton of reasons people could die. And many of the missionaries that came to West Africa never made it back home. And so here you have this super tiny woman. She's very frail. She's unassuming. She is here by herself. She didn't come with a husband. She didn't come with anybody else, really. But the interesting thing about her is she stood out because she was so weak. And I think as we go through her story, this will become very apparent that it was incredible, the things that she was able to do. But when she got there, she was horrified at all the things that she saw around her. Because it's one thing to read about it in a book or to prepare for it in missionary training school. But when you're there and you're at eye level with everything going on, it's way different. And so she went to her knees and she was just compelled by fear and depression. And she prayed, Lord, the task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way and I will follow. And then she got up and she said, why should I fear? I'm on a royal mission. I am in the service of the King of Kings. And that was how she lived the rest of her life, in fearless service to the King of Kings. And she learned the native language of the area, which was ethic, and that opened many doors for her with the people. And some of them even remarked that she could speak it better than they could, even though it was their native language. And she began to dress locally, and she drank unfiltered water, and she lived in the villages in the same houses built with the locals. She ended up sending most of her money back home to support her sister and mom, and so she couldn't afford necessarily to live like a Westerner, but this was by choice. But at the time, it was kind of a revolutionary mindset, whereas now that's more normal for us. It was not for them. It was seen as eccentric and kind of strange. But she did it, and it worked really well for her. Now, we know she got sick a few times and had to go back to Scotland to recover. Uh, She actually went back for like 18 months. Another was three years at a time. So she went back probably about three or four times. Because I mentioned before, she was very sickly. A lot of people actually got sick all the time. And so this wasn't necessarily uncommon for people to get sick. It was kind of uncommon for them to recover. But while she was in West Africa and not sick and not sent away to Scotland, she took in so many children that were left to die by exposure and neglect. So she would have people that ran to her door and they would knock on the door and they would tell her, like, we know this person who is having a baby. You should go rescue them. She would have people that would leave babies at her doorstep. She would go and search out at the edge of the bush and find these children left left abandoned. She'd search in clay pots. That was kind of her entire tenure as a missionary there would be periodically going around and, and checking for children that had been abandoned. But there's kind of this cute story that comes out of this where she was able to save so many children at a time that sometimes she would have like 20 to 30 children in her home at one time. So she had this method, and I think this is actually really cool, but she had her hammock set up, and each of the children had hammocks as well. And she would have a string that would go to each hammock of the children, and they would be connected to her hammock. And so one of the children would wake up in the middle of the night, and they would be crying or fussy or, you know, whatnot. She'd be able to take their string that went to their hammock, and she would just pull it and rock them back to sleep. So she would know exactly which one of these strings out of the 20 or 30 kids was this kid's string, and she would just pick it up. 
and just kind of rock them back to sleep. And that's super cool because that shows that like she had perfected the art of caring for so many children at one time that she was able to think of something so simple, but yet so ingenious. And two of the children we know the most about are Janie and Daniel. And Janie was one of the first children that Mary took in. Her twin passed away not long after Mary had taken them in. And Janie was raised in every respect, just like her daughter. She had actually named her after her, her youngest sister. And Daniel came along many years later. I think Janie was already an adult at the time. And these were the two we really know the most about. We do know that she took Janie back on a trip to Scotland that lasted for three years. She took her back to care for her mother and her sister. Her mother had contracted tuberculosis, and her sister was also just kind of frail. And they spent three years there, like I said, and then she came back when they started feeling better. And when she landed, it really hadn't been very long after they were kind of back doing things in West Africa again, that she received a letter that told her that her mother had died, and then received a letter not long after that that her sister also passed away. And so she was overcome by such loneliness and grief that she wrote down, There is no one to write and tell my stories and troubles and nonsense to. But she also found a sense of freedom, and she wrote, Heaven is now nearer to me than Britain, and no one will be anxious about me if I go upcountry. When she talks about the upcountry, she's talking about the parts of West Africa that nobody's gone to yet, nobody's at least successfully gone to yet. And these were places that she had been wanting to go for a long time. And every time the mission organization she was with was like, you're a woman and you're single. And even a lot of men who go die, most men who go die. And so we don't think it's the best idea for you to go. Well, eventually she persuaded them. And so in August of 1888, she made her way north to Okoyang. And a lot of times when they would get these missionaries that would come in, the few that chose to go up there, they would be beheaded or die other terrible ways. Most often, though, they were killed and cannibalized. So it wasn't really that great. It was a great trust in God that she even chose to come here because you kind of see how it's going for everybody else and you think, you know, I feel called to do this, so I'm going to do it. And let's just think about this for just a moment because at this point, she's already uh, saved a lot of children from infanticide. She has um, learned the language. She's formed friendships. She's evangelized to a lot of the region. She could have easily just said, you know what, I've, I've done a lot. But she says, no, I think God's got more for me to do. And she packs up her five adopted children and she decides to move into the Okoyong region, which was terrifying even for native West Africans. The day they're supposed to be going there, it rains all through the night. So it's muddy, it's gross. And she's walking these kids through at night and they're scared of the snakes and the leopards and the understandable dangers of being in a jungle at night. And she's, she's been walking them for a while, these five children. So you have a, I think the oldest was like 11 and the youngest was still a baby. It, it, it's a lot. I mean, you try walking with children anywhere and you know, it's very slow going. And she's walking them through jungles, muddy jungles at night. And there were two men behind them that were supposed to be carrying some of the goods they were bringing, like clothes and things like that. And then she realizes they're no longer behind them and they turned back. And so she trudges four miles back to the canoes, gets them out of the canoes and retraces her steps for four miles with five kids in tow and brings them to the village of Akenji. And the chief was so impressed he let him stay, which was a first. We know that she did work among three tribes in particular. She worked as a peacemaker, which was something they really needed because they were very violent, and not only to outsiders, but to even their own people and other tribes in the region. And they needed somebody who could work out their disputes between them so that it wouldn't become bloody and violent. She also worked in a missionary capacity for their spiritual needs because it's important, obviously, to help them in a humanitarian way. 
but it's more important to help them out spiritually because you can improve their physical living conditions, but if you can't improve their spiritual conditions, it doesn't matter in the end. But in the same way, if you don't improve their humanitarian situation, they could accuse you of not caring about anything else about them. She did a really good job balancing these roles that she took on, and she was also a friend to them. And she became so beloved in the region that they called her Ma, or the Queen of Okoyang. And there are several different stories about the ways that she helped intercede for people, or or the crazy stories that she would kind of become involved in. And there's a few I want to tell you about that are just, just so cool. One day, a chief's son was out, and he got hit by a tree that had fallen on him. And Mary was working very hard to keep him alive. And she had been ministering to his needs for like the last couple weeks. And one night she's at home and she gets a knock on her door. And this person's like, you need to come. You need to come very quickly. The chief's son is going to die. And when he dies, there's going to be a bunch of human sacrifices rounded up, which was the custom. Anytime that a, a chief's son or really anybody died, they needed somebody to blame. And so you would gather up different people that would serve as human sacrifices or kind of scapegoats, actually, in a way. And they would be killed to atone for the injustice of the death of whomever had died. And so she gets there and she sees the chief and he's blowing smoke into his son's nostrils and he's rubbing pepper into his eyes. And if you weren't going to die before this, it's not helping now. And so he, he ends up, he does end up passing away. And immediately the chief goes and rounds up 12 people because he thinks these people caused my son to die and they're going to die too. And so they're bought into the village and they're tied up. And Mary races out and she is just pleading with him and basically demanding that he let these people go. And this is just kind of incredible in and of itself because you have this tiny woman that is talking to one of the most powerful people in the region and she's telling him that he's not going to do something. He could have her killed at a moment's notice. But she ends up pleading with him and demanding that he let them go and he lets 11 of them go. And he says, okay, fine, I'll just keep this one. And she says, that's not enough. You need to release all of them. These people aren't guilty. And for many days, these two argued back and forth, and she prayed a lot about it. And in the end, this person was let go, and a cow was given in in sacrifice instead of a human. And this was the first time in this village, and maybe even the region, that a human sacrifice was not given after the supposed wrongful death of a chief or an important village member. And there are so many stories about her, like this, where she just races out at, like, a moment's notice going miles and miles through dangerous, dangerous jungle to stop these tribes from going to war. And there were many times she'd be in the village, she'd kind of be out in the middle, and she would stay around, and she would kind of knit in the center of the village. It's kind of in a way to make sure that nobody got into a fight. And then she realizes, kind of through being there for so long and breaking up so many of these fights and interceding for these people, they don't have any jobs. They don't have any way of providing for themselves. They would just spend all day drinking and fighting, and they had no greater purpose. And so she goes to the chief, and she says, hey, I think maybe it's a good idea to start trading with some of her tribes. And the chief said no. I mean, obviously, it's never been done that way before. They'd always fought. He wasn't interested in changing anything. And so she goes behind his back, which, once again, this guy can have her killed at any point. And she decides that it's better to work and try to make things better than to not. And it works really well. These people begin trading for the first time ever, these three neighboring tribes, and their conditions improve dramatically because they have a purpose. They have an economic system. And that stops a lot of the problems they were having, at least physically. And once she had been in Okoyang for several years, she decided that it was time to move on. She was able to plant a few churches there. Many of the people had been exposed to the gospel. Other missionaries were coming in. 
And she was always looking for the next thing, the next challenge, the next thing God wanted her to do. So then she moves into an even more rural part of the upcountry. And by now, her reputation kind of preceded her. So when she arrives, she's appointed as a magistrate to help mitigate peace in an official capacity. And she does that for a long time, at least five years or so, until her health begins to decline. And over the years, she had been sick so many times. In fact, while I was reading the stories, there wasn't really a story where she wasn't sick. So this had taken a toll on her, but she was able to outlive all of her family. I guess able is not the way you would say it, but she did outlive all of her family. And she had outlived many other missionaries who had gone in and had died either because they were killed by the different tribes or because they were killed by different diseases. And she was such a frail, small woman that she was supernaturally, God had preserved her health and preserved her life in a way that was incredible because you look at her on the outside and you would think, well, she's not going to make it. Definitely not her. But God had a purpose for her and a role for her, and he kept her until she was finished. And shortly before she died, she told all of her children, the children that she had adopted, and they were all adults now. And she said, I really like this part. She said, never talk about the cold hand of death. It is the hand of Christ. For I am persuaded with the Apostle Paul that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And in January 13, 1915, after a bad fever, she passed away at the age of 66. And it was like all of West Africa, everyone that she had impacted, all the lives of the children that she had saved, all the lives that she had helped guide to Christ, they wept bitterly and they said, our mother is dead. And to some of them, she was their actual mother because she had saved their lives and taken them in. She was given a state funeral and the Union Jack was laid over her casket and the flags were flown at half-mast. In a letter, Mary had written to a friend who had prayed for her for a long time and said, I have always said that I have no idea how or why God has carried me so many funny and hard places and made these hordes of people submit to me why the government should have given me the privilege of magistrate among them, except an answer to prayer made at home for me. It is all beyond my comprehension. The only way I can explain it is on the ground that I have been prayed for more than most. Pray on, dear one. The power lies that way. And when she was asked about how she felt about all the good things she had accomplished, she simply said, What would I do with starry crowns except to cast them at his feet? And I think that Mary really embodies this verse in 1 Corinthians that says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Because just to look at her, you wouldn't think anything about her. But clearly, God chose her for this specific purpose, to do work that other people much stronger than her were unable to do. And she has this physical legacy. Infant sacrifice was outlawed in Calabar and eventually all throughout the region. There was a festival in her honor a few years back in 2015. That was the 100-year anniversary of her death, and people from all over West Africa celebrated the things that she had done. She has a hospital named after her. There are churches that she helped plant that are still operating today. But greater than all of that is the spiritual legacy she left behind. The many people who had come to know the Lord through her dedication and service, and her children. And one of the things I noticed as I was looking back through her biography is how many people said that she was motherly and she was nurturing. And that's one of the things they noticed about her most often. And so God gave a woman who needed children, children. And he gave children who needed a mother, a mother. And he gave a region that needed hope, hope.
if you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to share with other people. Let them know what you're listening to. Let them know you're enjoying it. Share the love. And thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.